This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, New Life. Boy, I am so excited to share today with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I have the privilege of guiding us for the next 35 minutes or so as we continue to engage with God. And if it's your first time here, I want to share with you a few things that will get us all on the same page, because we believe that whether it's your first time or your hundredth time, there is no us and them. There is no in and out. We're all on this journey together. And so to get us all on the same page, go ahead and grab inside your programs two things. One would be your Start Here card. Uh, This is our connection card. It helps us stay connected to you. It will help you connect to the things that we're doing in the church, in the city, and around the world. And ultimately, when you're ready to take a next step in connecting with God in some sort of new or deeper way, boy, we want to be the church that helps you do that. And this connection card will help us help you get connected. So go ahead and put your name on that. And if you're new with us today, your email address so that we can connect with you when you want that information. And you don't have to do anything with this yet. Just hold on to it. And if I've earned your trust over the next 35 minutes or so, we're going to pass some baskets and you can just drop this card in the basket when it's passed. The other things you're going to want are these teaching notes. They've got a Bible story we're looking at today. They've got some fill in the blanks. And then they've just got some space to write down some of your own thoughts and ideas so that you can take this home and you can talk to your housemates about it, talk to your spouse, your kids, just kind of dig into the things that we're exploring today. Because my hope would be that this wouldn't be a one-time event that happens for an hour and five minutes or so every Sunday, but that this would be the launching point for an entire week of engaging with God in new and deeper ways. So go ahead and get that ready. And as you are, I just have a confession to make to you because I like confessing to a few hundred of my closest friends on Sundays. When Maria and I were first married, and we're coming up on nine years uh, this fall, when we were first married, we joined a marriage life group. And life groups are just small groups of people who gather together. We, We form friendships and we explore the things of God in our lives. And we were in a marriage life group. And one of the things they said to us early on was, boy, if you want your marriage to really thrive, don't have a TV in your bedroom. Well, that's a problem for me. Uh, See, because I like watching movies in bed. So here's my confession. I I don't have a TV in my bedroom. I just take my iPad into bed every night uh, and so that when my wife falls asleep, I can watch movies because she doesn't like the same movies I do. I like mystery movies. I like political thrillers. I like movies where they come to some sort of, you know, resolution at the end. She more prefers movies where, uh, you know, someone's dating someone Uh, but really love someone else, and then in the end, leave the person that they're with for the person that they want. And we don't hear about what happened 20 years later when she leaves him and goes back to the original guy, but that's another sermon for another day. You know the type of movie. Well, I like, I like, she's not here this service, obviously. Uh, I should be more specific. I don't really like Um, the mystery part as much as I like the resolution. I like knowing what happens at the end of the story, which is really hard because about 75% of the time I fall asleep in the last 20 minutes because I'm so tired and I never know what happens in the end because I'm too lazy to go back and watch it again. But don't you, don't you love a good mystery? I mean, don't you love solving, I should say, solving mysteries? You know, what, what happened to my lost socks, my lost keys, my lost hair, the mysteries of life? If you—he just looked at his dad. That's not cool, man. That's not cool. You're going in the same direction. We got to follow our family. The sins of our fathers, as they say. If you, if you like mysteries, if you like mysteries, the series that we're launching today is just for you. 
The series is called Decoded, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about the stories that Jesus told. Jesus reserved some of his uh, most powerful teaching for story form and something that the Bible calls parables. And parables are, are just fictional stories that explain a main truth, either about God or about us or about life and the way that we should live uh, in accordance to the fact that there is a God and what God's doing in the world. And the thing about parables is they always have one main thrust and they almost always have a twist right at the end. So we're thinking one direction and then things twist at the end and they teach us something new. And uh, they're, they're coded stories. And so the, the point of parables is Jesus tells them and then he invites, uh, he invites the listener to decode the story. In fact, these teachings are mysterious. One of Jesus' best friends, a guy named Matthew, who wrote a biography on Jesus' life, this is what he said about parables. In Matthew 13, he said, Jesus spoke all these things to crowds of people in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable, and so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things that have been hidden since the creation of the world. So when Jesus tells these parables, he's actually inviting us to decode or to discover things that have been hidden since the very creation of the world. If you like a good mystery, this series is for you. And here's what I'm going to invite us to do for the rest of the summer as we continue on this journey together. I'm going to ask us to put our detective caps on. I'm going to ask us to look at some of these teachings, these stories of Jesus, and dig into them and decode them and ask the question, well, what does this say about God? What does this say about life? What does this say about about me. And if you're brand new to church, this is the perfect series for you to come to. Maybe a friend invited you or your neighbor invited you. Maybe you just stumbled upon us. I just want to say I am so glad that you're here. This series is so good for you because in this series, we're going to unpack some of the core teachings of Jesus to give you kind of a fresh perspective of who God is and what it means to partner with God. And if you've been coming to church your entire life and you would say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a committed follower of Jesus— I want to tell you this series is perfect for you because we are exploring the deep truths of God that have been hidden since the beginning of the world. So for some of us, we'll be discovering things for the first time. For others, we'll be rediscovering things for the first time. And what I want to do today is start with my favorite parable. I heard this story for the first time when I was 17 years old. And the night I heard it, I was out in a field in the mountains outside of Sacramento. The night I heard it, it literally changed the direction of my life. I was walking one way. I heard this story. I began to understand the implications of it. And boy, it changed, changed everything for me because it explains this fun- fundamental question. And the question is this, who is God? Who is God at God's core? And see, the answer to that question has the potential to shape every part of our lives. When I ask you, who is God? Or when I say the word God, Whatever flashes across your mind's eye shapes everything you do from that moment forward. So for example, if I say God, and the first thing that comes to your mind is the word angry or mean or judgmental, then you may follow God, but you're going to do it out of fear so that God doesn't come down and just smash you. And there's no freedom in following an angry, mean, vengeful God. If when I say God, you picture in your mind's eye distant or disengaged, well, then you aren't going to really want to engage with God in everyday life because our assumption would be that God is this distant deity out there who only wants me to come to church once or twice a month, give a few bucks, and call it good. And so why would I want to engage with a distant God who's way out there, who has nothing to say about everyday life? 
when I say the word God, if you think impotent, not powerful to do anything in my life today, well, then all of a sudden Christianity just becomes this self-help thing. And why do we need God if we can help ourselves? See, the, the picture that we have in our minds when I say the word God really does shape every part of our lives moving forward. And so we're going to start with this foundational story that Jesus tells to answer this question, who is God? And as we walk through the story, I want you to be asking that question. Here's the big question for the day. What does this story teach me about God? And then what are the implications of it? And so Jesus tells us a story to tell us this is who God is. And, and here's what he does. He tells us a story about a dad who has two sons. And the dad in the story, spoiler alert, the dad in the story represents God. And the sons in the story represent us at different points in our lives. And for the sake of time, we're going to focus only on the younger son because we either are the younger son or we have been the younger son in the story. And Jesus starts off, he says, do you want to know who God is? He's talking to a huge group of Jewish people that come from broad spectrums in their faith at this point. He says, you want to know who God is? Well, God's like a man who has two sons. The younger son says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between the two of them. Not long after, the younger son got together everything he had, and he went off to a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And this story is unheard of in the ancient Middle East. People hearing this story would have been incensed. They would have been outraged. How dare this son? It's not like he's asking dad for a loan for books or college or a car. He's saying basically to his dad, dad, you are dead to me. I want to take your stuff, but I don't want anything to do with you. I'm denying not only you, but I'm denying everything you stand for. You're dead. And if a boy would have really done this in the ancient world and word got out, he would have been shunned by his community. In fact, he would have been afraid for his life because most likely other members of the community would have attacked him, thrown rocks at him, beat him up. That's what a serious offense it was to say to my dad, dad, you're dead to me. See, property in the ancient world was legacy. Property was passed from generation to generation to generation. So when the dad has to sell off part of his property, what he's doing is he's selling off part of himself that he can never get back, and he's giving it away to a son who doesn't want anything to do with him. And we find out that the son doesn't just waste the money. It's not like it's bad money management. It's not like we just need to send him to Financial Peace University for a few tips. That's not what's going on here. It says he squandered his wealth. The, the, the tenor of it is total depravity. In fact, later in the story, we won't get to it, we find out that he spent all of his money on prostitutes and wild living, prostitutes and booze. It's like, where's the after party? This kid's house every single night. He was drunk with freedom, and he gave himself completely to everything he knew would break his dad's heart. This is the story. This is the scene that Jesus is setting up. Verse 14 says that things go from bad to worse. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to citizens of that country, and they sent him to the field to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
No money, no friends. He's starving to death. The choice to leave his father's house, to leave the safety of his dad's leadership has left him homeless, helpless, and hopeless. So much so that he hires himself out to take care of pigs. And and to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand that the Jewish people on that day didn't associate with people who touched pigs, and they surely didn't touch pigs themselves because pigs were unclean. It was against their dietary laws. And so to do that would be to pretty much forfeit everything. It's the one of the lowest jobs you could ever take. And not only does this kid, not only does this kid take care of pigs, but now he wants to eat their pig slop. And and I know if you're a farmer in Sonoma County, all of our pigs are grass-fed. That's fantastic. But but picture like L.A., you know, like L.A. pigs. These are like, these are like, it's nasty. That's nasty. My grandpa had a, a farm in Oregon. I remember when he used to feed the pigs. It was, it was nasty. He wants to eat the pig slop. That's how bad it's gotten. And everyone listening to Jesus' story would have said the exact same thing at this moment. Here's what they would say. Serves him right. Serves him right. How dare he leave his dad? How dare he leave his family? How dare he leave his legacy? Serves him right. Because here's the thing. Ancient Jewish people, they understood God's love in terms of God's justice, which meant this. You do the right thing, you get the right thing. You do the wrong thing, you get the wrong thing. It was like, it was like cosmic karma for the Jews. And this boy had done the wrong thing and he was getting everything he deserved. Verse 17 says, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back to my father's house, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned. Basically, I have wronged you. In thought, in word, in action, I've wronged you. I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You can go ahead and underline that. That's kind of the crux of his story. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Instead, make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Have you ever done something really bad? I mean like really, really bad. If you're married, just shake your head. Yeah, I have, yeah. Here's what we do when we do something really bad, if you're like me, because we're not all that different. I know there feels like there's an invisible plexiglass wall here, but really we're, we're the same. I just have a mic. Here's what we do when we do something really bad. We spend the first period of time, half hour, hour, day, week, justifying it, saying why they were wrong, why they're a jerk, why they shouldn't have done that. And then somewhere in there, a little voice comes in the back of the head and says, wait a minute, you were the idiot. And then what do we do? We immediately begin to figure out how we're going to go back. This happened to me more times than I, I care to admit in my first two years of marriage. And I'll say this, when we got married, a lot of people said, boy, that first year of marriage, it's the honeymoon phase. It's the best. You're going to love it. Everything's great. That was not our experience, okay? <laughs> and I say that to you because if you're going through a rough patch of marriage right now, boy, don't give up. Our first two years were the hardest years we've ever had. And now we're about to hit year nine and it's gotten so much better because we didn't give up. But those first two years of marriage were so hard for us. It sent us into counseling. We found out, oh, look at us, we're pregnant. That's a surprise. Uh, That sent us into counseling. We had to learn how to communicate, how to forgive. We had so much to do. But I tell you, more times than I care to admit, we'd get into a fight. Uh, Christians, we call them disagreements, but really they were fights. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
We'd get into a fight, and I'd storm out, shut the door softly. (laughs) And I'd get in my car, and I'd start driving. And the whole time, I'm just... I'm just repeating the, the tape in my head of how wrong she was. How could she do that? It's all her fault. And then somewhere about the Sonoma County line, uh, so I came to my senses. And it was like, no, you're the jerk. She's probably sitting at home, you know, praying and singing worship music. That's, that's your saint of a wife, you know, like you're the jerk. And I immediately did this. I immediately began rehearsing my apology to her and spent the rest of the time just trying to figure out how to get back in her good graces. And that's exactly what the son is doing right now. He spent all this time away from dad, and all of a sudden he comes to his senses, sitting in pig slop, and he immediately begins rehearsing his apology. He begins planning his penance. What do I have to do to get back to my dad? How can I make it back to him. Verse 17 says, he came to his senses, which is a euphemism for the word that he repents. And repents is just a Bible word that just means to change something, to change usually the way we think, which then changes the way we act. And if you were raised in a a kind of a strong fire and brimstone type church, repent was this really bad word, but repent's actually a really good word. It means I was thinking something. It was wrong. I came to my senses, realized the right thing, and started going the right direction. So I was thinking bad. Now I am thinking good. That's all repent means. Turned from something that was hurting him to something that would be good for him. And he begins to plan his penance. What can I do to get back in my dad's good graces? And here's what he comes up with. I can't do anything. The best I can hope for is to be a servant because the son realized that he had blown it so bad that it was beyond anything he could do to repair it. And the truth is, he is right. He's right. He spent all of his dad's money. He cannot earn that money back in his dad's lifetime to repay him. There's no possible way he could do it. The only way his dad can accept him back in is if his dad takes the hit for the financial loss upon himself. He's abandoned his family in a time and in a culture where you never abandoned your family. And he's broken his dad's heart. And there's nothing he can do to fix it. The best he can hope for is to go back and be a slave in his dad's house and hopefully not starve to death. But remember I told you earlier that parables, they have a main thrust and they almost always have a twist. And here's where the twist comes in. And this is where we learn what God is like. So listen up. It says in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and his dad was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. And he said to him, father, I've sinned. This is his, his penance, his rehearsed line. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his dad broke in right there and said, quick, bring the best robe. Bring it out and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. We have to celebrate. The son of mine who was dead is now alive. Who was lost is now found. We must celebrate. Dad looks out down the road. He's been scouring the landscape for his son, maybe for months, maybe for years. He sees his son in the distance, and he takes off, and he runs after his son. And I know this is super uncomfortable because I broke through the barrier. He runs after his son, and he finds his son, and everyone hearing the story is stunned. Because as uncomfortable as it is for me to be out here, it'd be a thousand times more uncomfortable for a Jewish head of a house to run. They didn't do it. Everything revolved around the men. Everything. You ate when the husband was hungry. You went to bed 
when the husband said it was time to go to bed, everything revolved around him. You would not ever see a Jewish man run. It was a sign of weakness. But this dad takes off, and he wraps his arms around his son. Tears start pouring out of his eyes. He hugs him. He kisses him. He puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, sandals on his feet, which were all signs to the people that this son is reinstated as a son in my house with all the rights and privileges afforded to a son. And his son starts to confess to him. He says, I know, I know, I know. You're coming back. I know all you've done. I know all you've done. Stop. Accept my love for you. Sarah said earlier, what does grace sound like? For the son in this story, grace sounds an awful lot like his dad's footsteps running down a dirt road and grabbing him in his arms. Here's the question we're asking today. What does this story teach us about God? And here's the answer. God is like a father who's full of grace. And when I say grace, I'm talking about undeserved favor. This son didn't deserve an ounce of the favor his dad was giving him. God is like a father full of undeserved favor towards a runaway child. The son, here's what the son deserves. He deserves to be disowned by his dad. He deserves to be beaten by his dad in the community. He deserves to be treated like the lowest of slaves for the rest of his life. He deserves to have his nose rubbed in his mistake like you rub your dog's nose and pee when it pees on the carpet. That's what he deserves. And everybody knows it. But instead, the dad runs to his son, cries for his son, reinstates his son because he loves his son. Because his son was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. And that's not the world we live in. We live in a world that's very much like the ancient Jewish world where we get what we deserve. You do what's right, you get what's right. You do what's wrong, you get what's wrong. But that is not the driving force behind God's economy. God's economy has a driving force of grace. And grace cannot be earned and it isn't deserved. It can only be received and responded to. So the question for us becomes, how do we respond to a God like that? Remember what I said earlier, what we believe about God, when we hear the word God, what we think in our head affects everything we do from that moment forward. So what if God is not at God's core angry or distant or powerless? What if God at his core is more like a perfect, powerful, always present, looking over the horizon, loving father who is just waiting to forgive, waiting to support, waiting to call us back home? What if that's the picture that comes to our minds when we think about God? How does it affect us? Because as much as God is like the father in the story, every single one of us at one point in our lives, and maybe you find yourself here today, is like the son in the story. Every single one of us has taken the gifts that God has given us, whether we knew God or not, the gifts that God has given us, and we've turned away from God and said, thanks, but I'll do it on my own because I think I know how to live better than you do. And at some point, every single one of us finds that living outside of God's plan for our life is going to leave us sitting in pig slop. That pig slop is what the Bible calls sin. Sin 
if you want a working definition, it's the things that you and I, that we dwell on in our minds, that we say and that we do that hurt us, that hurt the people closest to us that we love, and that ultimately separate us from God. Just like the son's decision separated him, God or his dad from him, our sin separates us from God. And here's the, here's the worst part of it. I don't have to tell you what sin is because you've laid in bed before and you've thought to yourself, I'm never going to do that again, go there again, say that again, be with him, be with her, look at that, watch that, drink that, smoke that, lie about that. I'm never going to do that again. And then a week or a month or a year later, we're doing the exact same thing we swore we'd never do. And here's why. Because sin isn't just actions we do. There's something inside of us that's called a sin nature that compels us to do the very things that separate us from our loving God. And we're told that just like in this story, the dad had to take the hit for his son's bad choices. Had to take the financial hit. In the same way, God had to take the hit for our sin. Someone had to pay for our sin, and we could not pay for it ourselves. And we remember every week, we pause and we reflect on the fact that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, he took the hit upon himself that we could not pay on our own. And he did it when he gave his life on a cross. Because we're told that sin leads to death, physical death and spiritual death. All sin leads to death, and someone has to pay for the death for our sin. And Jesus paid the penalty for our sin when he gave his life on the cross. He took what we owed, that debt, and he took it on himself when he died on the cross. And then he rose from the dead. And when he did, he broke the power of sin. He broke that sin nature inside of us so that we could be forgiven and truly free and run back to our dad. What's God like? God's like a dad who runs to his kid, wraps him up in his arms, cries over his child, and reinstates us into the family. And I don't know about you, but when I heard that story as a 17-year-old, something clicked for me, and it changed everything. I remember sitting out in a field and saying to God, God, if you are truly this loving, if you truly want to forgive like this father wanted to forgive his son, then God, I know I can trust you with my life. And that day I surrendered my life to God and said, God, I'm going to trust you no matter where you take me. And now, when I'm going through life, if I come upon a time and I wonder, where is God? What's happening? Why is this happening to me? Here's what I do. I go back to my fundamental understanding of God that I experienced when I was 17, that God is always only good, that God is always only looking out for me, for you, for us, and that God always only wants what's best for us. And I remember I can trust God even when I can't find God in that moment, in that second. When I, when I open up my Bible and I read things that I don't understand, and I do, sometimes I don't understand the things I read in the Bible or things that I don't agree with. Here's what I do. I go back to what is God's character? Oh, that's right. God is always only good all the time. And if God is as gracious and forgiving and loving as the dad in that story, then I can trust God when I read things in the Bible that I don't understand. I can even trust God when I read things that I don't agree with. Because God is always only good, all the time. What flashes across your mind when you hear the word God? It will shape everything moving forward. If you're here today, 
And you would say, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus. Absolutely I am. I want to ask you this question. Do you trust God enough that even when you come up against things you don't understand or you don't agree with, do you trust God's character, God's core enough to say, even when I don't agree or understand, I'm going to choose to follow you anyway because I know I can trust you with my life. Because a lot of the stories that Jesus tells, a lot of the parables, they have really practical application, things to do in light of God. But if we don't understand who God is at God's core, boy, it's going to shape the way we hear everything else. Maybe you're here today and you're like the son in the story. Right now, right now. You realize that you have walked away from God and you find yourself sitting in your own slop and thinking, boy, if I could only get back over to God, it could change everything. Boy, I have good news for you. You can bet your life on the fact that God is looking through this room right now for you. That God sees you, that God knows you, that God knows everything you've ever done or thought or said. And that God is just waiting to run to you the minute you turn to him, the minute you repent, that God is going to run to you. And he's not going to make you give your confession. He already knows. And he's not going to make you do penance. You don't have to earn your way back into God's good graces. He is going to forgive you with an undeserved grace like you've never experienced. And then he's going to take that old sin nature that causes us to do the things we don't want to do, and he's going to replace it with his spirit so that we can actually live in freedom, forgiven in a relationship with God, and have the freedom of God in our lives. You can bet your life on the fact that God is just waiting for you to turn to him so he can run to you. So I'm going to pray in just a second, and I'm going to pray for all of us to begin with, asking God to clarify our picture of God's core character so that we can have the courage to follow him with our lives. And then I'm going to give you a chance. If you've never said yes to God, if you've never entered into a personal relationship with God, I'm going to give you a chance to, to pray and invite God to be in charge of your life once again. You're going to have the opportunity to come back into God's family. And the prayer you're going to say, it's not a magic prayer. It's not a magic spell. It's simply a prayer of commitment where you would say, God, I've walked away from you. I'm turning to walk back. And I can guarantee you, God is running to you in that moment. And God answers that prayer 100% of the time. And God celebrates with you because God's like the dad in the story, looking for you, loving you, ready to put a robe on your shoulders, a ring on your finger, sandals on your feet. So would you join me? Let's pray together. And then after we do, the worship team's got a little something for us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I would ask that as we continue to decode the secret mysteries that have been hidden from the creation of time, that you would open our eyes to to see you in a whole new light. As we've spent time this morning decoded, God, your core essence, your core character— that Jesus reveals to us through the story of this dad running to his lost son. Would you help each of us to trust you just a little more fully today so that we could take steps to walk with you just a little more completely and that you would show up just like you promised you will. Would you give us the courage to walk with you today? Would you help us to think this week more and more about what it looks like to have a God who is as completely good and loving and powerful and compassionate as you? As we continue to pray, if you're here and 
you've never entered into a personal relationship with God, or maybe you were raised in church, but you walked away from God years ago, and you didn't want anything to do with God. Basically, you said to God what the son said to the dad, you're dead to me. I want to give you a chance to come back to God today. And you can do it by repeating a simple prayer of commitment where you would turn back to God. So you can repeat these words right where you're sitting, either whisper them, or you can say them in your head, and God hears and will respond to you. Just repeat these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me. And I believe that you gave your life on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And today I'm running back to you. So would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to live the rest of my life as your child? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so everything God says, everything he does, every invitation he gives to us is all in light of the great and powerful work he has done for us. So when we think about God this week, Let's remember that God is like, it's like a loving dad searching a dirt road for his son and running out to him and reinstating him with the grace of a father who calls his kids back, who forgives their debt, and then who invites them to walk in partnership with the family, to walk in partnership with dad. As we wrap our time up together, I want to draw our attention back to these Start Here cards. On the back, I like to give us ways to respond to and apply the things we're learning each week. And there's one simple way to apply today. If you're here and you, you prayed with me, you made that decision, you're recommitting your life back to God or committing your life to God like the son in this story, we want to know about it so that we can pray for you, so that we can celebrate with you, and so that we can get some resources in your hand to partner with you on this journey. And if you're making that decision today, would you mark down, I'm entering into a first-time relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Would you mark that down? And here's what you can expect. You can expect us to pray for you by name this week. You can expect uh, one of our pastors to get some resources into your hand to give you some next steps on this journey of faith because you're not alone. You're part of God's family and it is a great place to be. So go ahead and mark that down. For the rest of us, here's what I would just ask us to do. We're going to have a lot of, of things to do in response to these mysterious teachings of Jesus moving forward for the next seven weeks. The only thing I would ask of us today is this question. Would you spend this week asking, do I trust God? Can I trust this God? Can I bet my life on God? Because that makes it easy when God invites us into things moving forward. It makes us easy to say yes if we know God and trust God. So would you spend time this week thinking about that? Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a parable, a story Jesus tells that says, in light of God's great forgiveness, in light of God's great grace, how does that impact and affect the way we treat each other. It has incredible implications in your marriage, in your family, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with our enemies. It has implications all over the place. You don't want to miss it. The story he tells, it's, it's absolutely amazing. It's a, it's a mystery hidden from the beginning of the world that we're going to decode. So make sure you come back next week.
Well, in just a second, we're going to be passing some baskets where you can turn this card in. Uh, you can also turn in re- your tithes and offerings if you came prepared to give. And I do want to say, church, uh, I am loving what God's doing in our community in terms of generosity. Ever since that meet a we journey that we took, our church's generosity is growing. I'll share with you in just a second some of the things that we're able to do because of that. But I just want to say thank you for practicing generosity in a way that stretches us as Jesus followers and then glorifies God as we reach the cities that God loves so much. So thank you for your generosity. Things are going great. Uh, unexpected generosity story since I've got like two minutes. It's, it's popping up all over the place. Um, we had somebody say, hey, I'm going to donate a bus. A bus. Who, who donates a bus? I'm going to donate a bus to the church. So we're going to get like a 21-person bus. And it's a short bus, but we're not going to leave it yellow. We're going to paint it cool. Like it's going to be a cool bus, okay? And we're going to have like the logo on it. And, and our student pastor, Jake, is already getting his license. So he'll be looking to take you out on group dates and things pretty soon. So no, it's, it's, a stu- it's for our students and it's just going to be a great thing. But that's just like, who does that? Well, generous people do generous things. That's how generous people work. And so thanks for your generosity. Um, hey, one thing I want to draw your attention to before we pass those baskets is on July the 26th, it's a Sunday coming up here in a few weeks, during second service, we have a class called Intro. And Intro basically explains to us the heartbeat of new life, what we believe about God and the implications of that in our church community, why we do church the way we do, why we take steps the way we do, why we love and live and serve the way that we do. If you've never gone through intro, I want to strongly encourage you on the bottom of your card where it says respond to something in the nutshell, you can just mark intro and we'll get you some information about it, get you signed up for it. It says in your program that it's going to last from 10 to 1230. That's not actually true. It's only during second service. Sorry about the typo. It's 10 to about 1105, 1110. So it's an hour, hour and 10 minute long uh, journey about what it looks like to be a part of this community. And I'm telling you, if you like the things you're hearing right now, you will love going to intro and hearing even more. So I want to encourage you to sign up for that. Well, I'm going to pray and then we'll pass those baskets. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to practice generosity. Uh, Thanks for the fun ways. The bus is just one story, but the many fun ways that you are uh, inviting each of us to be creative in the way that we love and live and give generously. Would you take these resources and would you use them to knock down barriers that would keep the cities that we love from loving you because we know you love our cities, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're passing those baskets. You can drop in your connection card. You can drop in your tithes and offerings. I want to give a couple quick updates. If you've been around for a while, you know that uh, the health center down the street, they use our parking lot during the week. They park about 70 cars in our parking lot. It's the way we just wanted to be good neighbors to the folks at the health center. They needed some extra parking. Well, they came to us and they said, because you're letting us park here, we'd like to formalize this and we would like to give you a quarter of a million dollars so that you can pave out that parking lot um, so that our people can have a better parking lot and your people can have a better parking lot. It's a win-win. And so they did that. They gave us $250,000, but it wasn't just general use because some of you have asked, well, why are we spending it on, on a parking lot? Well, because they designated it for the parking lot. And Pastor Ron, about a week ago, he went and got a check for $250,000, and he's still here. So that's good news. Yeah, he didn't run. Um, Yeah. I was also very encouraged by that. Uh, Integrity in leadership. Uh, And at some point, I I was given dates for a while. I'm not going to. At some point between today and when Jesus comes back, we will start on that parking lot. So Uh, just know you're going to come in here one of these Sundays this summer and you're going to see like earth being moved. Then you'll know 
It's the sign of the times, okay? The parking lot is starting at that point, and it should take six weeks or so from the start to the end. So that's fun. Um, we are looking to hire a children and family pastor. Because of your generosity, we can increase our staff size. We've been in interviews with one gal who we really like, and we're going to fly her out, but she can't come out until the end of August. So that's a little ways out. So uh, just know we are in that process still. In the interim, we're still looking at other applicants and trying to find the best person for our children and our families. And I will keep you updated as time goes on. And one last thing to celebrate before we head out of here today. Uh, I invited us, a friend of ours in the church, said, well, what if we wrote some letters to the families who were affected by the Charleston shootings? And I invited you, just take a minute to write a letter, and then we will mail that for you next week. We sent out on Wednesday, we sent out 93 prayer letters. That was just so encouraging, I think, to our friends in Charleston. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers and your love and support of, of our brothers and sisters in the family of God around this country. I know it meant a lot to them. It sure meant a lot to me as your pastor to be able to send that out on your behalf. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you back here next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.